to you today about fear and faith. And I want you to ask yourself a question. And the question is, am I here out of fear? Now, I don't, liter- I don't necessarily mean are you here in this building out of fear. Here meaning where you are in life. We are here, right? I mean, all of us are here. Not just in this physical location, but, but we are here. This is our time of visitation. What, what is happening in your life? Who are you? How are you living? What is, what is going on? It goes back to, to what I was just talking about. Is there fruit in your life? Is there not fruit in your life? What is your attitude? What is your belief system, your mindset? Are you here out of fear, or are you here out of faith? Yet last night at uh, the high school, we had an event. Uh, we had an evening of prayer for the persecuted church. And uh, Gitana was here in town, and he's gone and getting ready to fly out to Kenya. He's going to be in Kenya through the rest of November and into half of December. And uh, as many of you know uh, that are familiar with Gitana, Gitana's uh, from Ethiopia. He was tortured for his faith and just has really a miraculous story. Um, and he has devoted his life to, to not only the cause of the persecuted, but, uh, but really to, to the gospel. And uh, God, in his sovereign, miraculous way, brought him to America and so last night he was here as our guest, and, and he is traveling around right now uh, working with Voice of the Martyrs to bring awareness to the persecuted church. And um, if you were there last year, you know that in, there were some really graphic images. Um, last year he had returned from Somalia and um, Kenya, and he had, was over there for about a month or maybe longer and had trained Somali pastors. And um, last year, he had the images, the very graphic images of a Somali pastor who was stoned to death uh, because uh, for preaching the gospel. Uh, it was really hard to look at. Um, but it, it's reality. And you know, a lot of people in America don't like to see images like that. They don't like to talk about things like that. You know, um, the truth is, we have a real shallow gospel here in America. We just do. Uh, we like to pretend like things like that don't happen. We like to emphasize all of the positive things, and, and it's all about my success and my happiness and all of that, which is fine and good. Who doesn't want to be happy? Who doesn't want to be successful? Who doesn't want to have peace in their life? We do, don't we? But the reality is we live in a world, and there are real things going on, and there are real believers who are really losing their lives for the sake of the gospel. And one of the images last night that just really had an impact on me. Um, in, in Somalia, what they do when they, when they catch you preaching the gospel, um, besides stone you... Um, I guess, I guess before they do that, uh, what, what the image was, it was, like a, a, it was almost like a flagpole. At the top of this pole, there was a foot that had been cut off and a hand that had been cut off. And what they do when they catch you preaching the gospel is, 
They cut your hand off and they cut your foot off, and that's your warning. And so there was this picture of all of these Somali pastors sitting there in a group picture, and they all had a foot cut off and a hand cut off. And these guys are still preaching the gospel. And you know, the next time they get caught, they'll probably end up like the guy in the picture that was buried down to his neck and then stoned to death. And it just makes me think about us here in America. And I'll be the first to tell you, God, see, I didn't get to choose where I was going to be born, but if I could have chosen what nation I would be born in, I would have chosen to be born in America. I didn't choose that. God chose that for me. And I always tell people, he probably chose that for me because he knew I couldn't handle being a Somali pastor. <laughs> you know, I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, it's, we, we talk big. Yeah, I'd give my life. We're like Peter. Lord, I'll follow you even to death. I'll never deny you. Yeah, well, when they bring that blade out and they're fixing to chop your hand off and your foot off, or they're bearing you down to your neck, and they've got not little rocks, but I mean boulders, and they're asking you, will you deny Christ? Will you deny Christ? And here's the photos of the guy, and he keeps pointing up, and he's saying, there is one Lord, there is one Lord, there is one Lord. Yeah. We preach a shallow gospel here in America. And I know this is a challenging message, but you know what? The church in America needs to be challenged. Christians in America need to be challenged. And, and I was just thinking last night as we prayed for the persecuted church, about midway through, Gatana says, you know, I just felt like we need to pray for America. And I just, just had these thoughts, you know. I thought, God, forgive us for preaching and living such a shallow gospel. You know, forgive us for perverting the message of the gospel into a plan for success in, instead of your plan for salvation. You know how many people come to church now to be successful, to find happiness, to find peace? Nothing wrong with that, but I'm telling you what, the gospel is not, it's not for that reason. That is a benefit of the gospel. You know why we have peace you don't have peace today. In reality, you might have peace because your bills are all paid, because you live in a nice house, driving a nice car, your check engine light's not on, and you can get your car inspected without having to spend a lot of money. You guys ever been there? Technology, you know, it kind of cuts both ways. It's good and it's bad. But the peace that the Scripture talks about, the peace is the peace we have with God. I was the enemy of God. Now I have been reconciled by the blood of the Lamb and I am no longer God's enemy. As a matter of fact, Paul says now God has, has put His Spirit in you and the Spirit of God from your heart cries out. It's the Spirit of adoption crying out, Abba, Father, Daddy, God. Grace did that. That's the peace that we have with God. And we don't have peace because God has given us the power to work harder, to earn it better. No. Do you realize the reason the gospel is gospel, the reason the good news is good news, is because you and I were in a place, we were in a hole so deep, so dark, so hopeless, 
There was nothing you or I could do to get out of that. The good news is God took me out of the place that only he could deliver me from. God, through the new birth, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, makes us new creations. You didn't create yourself the first time. You didn't create yourself the second time. It is the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ that has now enabled you to become a new creation. And because you are a new creation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, guess what? You have peace with God. If God is for us, Paul declared in Romans, who can be against us? Is there a height high enough? Is there a depth deep enough? Is there a width wide enough? Is there an angel, a demon, a person, a situation, a circumstance? Is there anything that can separate us if we are in Christ from the love of God? And the answer is no. That, that, brothers and sisters, that's peace. That's peace. See, the problem is we don't really understand when God says, when Jesus said, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. See, there is a peace as the world defines it. There is a peace as God defines it. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his very soul? Oh, you, might, you might gain great things and great possessions and have great peace because of all that you have amassed and all that you have. And you can afford to do and go and, 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 and provide anything that your heart desires. And that might bring you peace. But here's what Jesus says. You go ahead and gain the whole world. But in the end, if you lose your soul, what, what peace is that? It's not peace. It's peace as the world wants us to believe that it is. But it is not the peace of God. It's not the peace of God. God gives the power to create wealth. I was thinking about this because I'm going to read a quote to you uh, today from Steve Jobs. Um, In just a moment. You know, Steve Jobs was a very wealthy man. And actually, I watched a, I watched a, I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen it. It it's really is worth watching. I watched the commencement address that Steve Jobs gave to Stanford University. It's about 15 minutes, and uh, it's really quite amazing. It's quite an amazing address. Now, Steve Jobs, to my knowledge, was not a believer. Um, you know, I don't know what happens as you approach death. Don't know where he was exactly when he left this earth. But to, for, for all practical purposes, there's no reason to believe that he was a Christian. Uh, but yet, this man who, to my knowledge, never professed faith in Christ, uh, said some pretty profound things. I'll read you just, uh, just one thing from it um, here in just a little bit. But this idea 
This, our understanding of the gospel, who we are in Christ, what God has provided for us in Jesus Christ. This is, this is our greatest source of peace. Now remember, I want to talk to you today about faith and about fear. And I, and I ask that you would ask yourself this question, am I here out of fear. I want to read two scriptures to you before we talk more about this. Proverbs 28, 29, 18. In the King James, it says, where there is no vision, the people perish. And many of you probably have heard that scripture, might have it on a plaque in your home or on your refrigerator. A more accurate translation is, where there is no prophetic revelation, the people cast off restraint. Where there is no prophetic revelation, the people cast off restraint. Proverbs 29, 18. We usually quote that scripture, but we don't quote the rest of the verse. And the rest of the verse is this. Let me just read it to you in context. Where there is no vision, where there is no prophetic revelation, the people cast off restraint. But happy, but happy is he who keeps the law. Now law, for many of us in Christendom, has become a dirty word because we're not under the curse of the law any longer. So we think the law is a bad thing that God has thrown out. This word law, translated in the Hebrew, is, is the word Torah. And the Torah was simply, it can mean the the law of Moses and all the rules and regulations and the dietary and ceremonial things. But more accurately, in a greater sense, the Torah was the first five books of the Bible. Solomon wrote most of the Proverbs. And when Solomon wrote those Proverbs, most of the rest of the Old Testament as we know it today wasn't even written. He did have the law. He did have the Torah. He did have... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he said this, where there is no prophetic revelation, the people cast off restraint. They perish. But happy is he, happy is he who keeps the law. And so you could take that word law and you could just as easily put in there the scripture, the word of God. Would you agree that Happy, that word happy, you know what it means? It means blessed. So in the Beatitudes, blessed is he. Another translation of that is happy is he. So would you agree that we are blessed as we keep the scripture? That we are blessed as we abide by and are governed by the scripture? Absolutely. This is what Solomon is saying here in Proverbs where there is no prophetic revelation. Where does prophetic revelation come from? I mean, contrary to public or popular charismatic opinion, it it doesn't just come from a guy who has a dream or a vision. Prophetic revelation, if it doesn't come from the Scripture, you better run from it as hard and as fast and as long as you can. And there's a lot of people running around professing to be purveyors of prophetic visions that have no root or ground in the Scripture. And that is not 
what Solomon is talking about here. He ain't talking about the local prophet and you can go to his house and get a word, get a dream interpreted. He is talking about the word of God, the scripture, where there is no prophetic revelation. The people perish. They cast off restraint. What is it that constrains us? What is it that gives us safety and security? Do you realize that boundaries provide safety and security? My oldest son got married in... St. Louis at a place called Bee Tree Park. It was beautiful, overlooking the Mississippi River. Who's ever seen the Mississippi River? Man, it's called the Mighty Mississippi, and it's called the Mighty Mississippi for a reason. I mean, that is a mighty river. I mean, the San Gabriel barely compares to it. And do you know that the Mississippi River is a source of great commerce? There are ships and barges that go up and down the Mississippi River carrying uh, goods and providing services. And it has provided many benefits, not just to the people that live along that river, but, but to all of us. But you know what allows the Mississippi River to be a benefit to the people that live there? It's called banks. And I'm not talking about the ones you keep your money in. Though that is where the word came from. Did you know that? The word bank actually came from that because back in the the dark ages, in the middle ages, they would travel by river and they would establish these places where you could get letters of credit, and they did it on the rivers. And you'd, you'd stop as you'd travel by boat, and you would do your business and get your letter of credit. And when you got to Jerusalem to make pilgrimage, then they'd cash it in for you. It was, credit cards are not really a modern-day invention. They, they've been around for a long, long time. So this is how banks have become, to know, become known as banks. But what enables the Mississippi River to be a benefit instead of a curse are the banks. Now, when we were in St. Louis, we saw the watermarks throughout St. Louis of the great floods that have occurred when that river got out of its banks. And when a great river, or any river, when the San Gabriel River gets out of its banks, what is very productive becomes very destructive. What provides banks for us? What is it that provides the boundaries and safety for us? It is the Word of God. But not just the wooden letter of the Word, because the, the, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Does that mean we throw out the Word and we just go after the Spirit? No. What is the Spirit Revealing to us what this word is declaring to us. And what is this word, or I would more accurately ask, who is this word declaring to us? Well, his name is Jesus. So where there is no prophetic revelation, the people perish. They cast off restraint like a river that has left its banks There is nothing constraining it any longer. It's just going everywhere. And it's very destructive. 
When we live like that and we are not constrained by the Word of God, even though we may think we have the best intentions, we actually become very destructive. This is why people are leaving the church. This is why people don't want to have anything to do with Christianity because they don't really know who Christ is. They don't really know what this Word is declaring. They just see and have experienced what men have turned it into, and it's like a river that's left its banks and it's just becoming destructive. But we call it good or we call it God, and it's not. And I'll read another scripture to you, Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Paul, the Apostle Paul makes this statement. He says, one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting those things that are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. So how how are you living? I need to ask myself, how am I living? Have you lost your passion? Have you ever found your passion? I'm serious. I looked at at that foot in that hand hanging from that post in Somalia, and and I don't know who that foot in that hand belonged to, but whoever it belonged to was a person of passion. It was a person who had found their passion. They were willing to give up their hand and their foot for their passion. Just... Ask yourself this question right now. Whatever your passion is, however you would define that or whatever name you would put to that, would you give up your hand and your foot for that? Would you? What, or really what I should say, is who? Who is your passion? See, for that Somali pastor who had his foot and hand raised up on that pole... You know who his passion was. His passion was Christ. He could have easily kept his foot in hand had he denied Jesus, but he didn't do it. His passion for Christ was greater than his passion for his hand and his foot. And nobody is asking you to give your hand or your foot. But I think it's a legitimate question for us to ask the church, to ask ourselves, who is our passion We heard from Sam last week, who had to travel a number of miles just to go to church every Sunday. Quite an ordeal there in Uganda. How much trouble was it for us to get up this morning and come to the house of God and worship together? It might have been some trouble. might have been inconvenient. I'll just be honest with you, man. When my alarm went off at... 510, I did not want to get up. I hit the snooze twice. And I still didn't want to get up. Who is your passion? Have you found it? Are you living it? Can you define it? Who is your life? You know what the Bible says? When Christ, who is our Life appears. Who is our life? Christ is our life. 
Christ is our life, literally. Here's a quote from Steve Jobs. When I was 17, I read a quote. Here's the quote he read. If you live each day as if it was your last, someday you will most certainly be right. (laughs) Think about that. And then he said this. He says, I have looked myself in the mirror every morning and asked myself, if today were the last day of my life, would I want to do what I am about to do today? Man, that is a great question. I wish a Christian would have thought of that question. A Christian should have thought of that question. How many of us get up and we look in the mirror and we ask ourselves a question like that? If this was the last day of my life, am I doing what I would want to do? What I'm about to do, is this what I would do if this was the last day of my life? Now I know our first thought is, that's not even reasonable, Pastor Jeff. Because I've got to go to work and do my job, and no, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't even worry about doing my work or doing my job if it was the last day of my life. You know, the reality is, though, if that's really our answer, we should really stop and consider that. And if we're just focused on our work and our job and not a greater purpose and a greater cause within that, coupled with that, then we're missing the big picture here. Because you don't exist just to work a job or own a business or do what you're doing. You may work a job, I hope you do. You may own a business, I hope you do. I hope you're very successful. But you weren't created and put on this earth to be successful at your job or your business or just to enjoy the office you go to and the people you work with. You are created and put here for a much greater reason. And all of those things are things that God has allowed you to experience and and he's connected you and blessed you with the job you have or the business you have and the relationships you have, but you've got to see beyond those things to the greater purpose and the greater cause for which God created you and put you on this earth. See, for Steve Jobs, I'm just guessing, but I don't think for Steve Jobs it was just the, the technicality or the minutia of making computers and, and doing those things. He saw much a greater picture beyond the, the power books and beyond the iPhone and the iPad. It wasn't just creating the, the literal things, tools we hold in our hand. It was what those things did and what they meant for people and what they mean for the world. See, if all you're focused on is the specifics of where you go on Monday morning and who you meet on Monday morning and what you have to do and the minutia of your job every day, then you've missed the bigger purpose of why you're here. What I'm saying is we got to find the bigger purpose. But we're not going to find that bigger purpose by making the gospel more shallow. We're going to find that bigger purpose by plumbing the depths of the gospel and beginning to understand, as Paul writes, the height, the depth, the width of his love. And not just what that means for me personally, but what that means in terms of my life and how my life impacts everything around me. 
Is fear holding you back, keeping you from pressing forward? Or is faith motivating you forward and upward in God's love that is casting out your fear? There's a lot of fear in the world right now. And much of what we do, if we were really honest, we would say, I'm doing this out of a motivation of fear more than I am faith. And I'm saying God doesn't want you Not only does he not want you to be motivated by fear, he doesn't want you to be held captive by fear. Because fear involves torment. Now there's a healthy fear and there's an unhealthy fear. Now I'm assuming you guys are wise and you understand what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about climbing to the top of the water tower and not being afraid to jump off or or dangle there. Oh, look, I have no fear because I know God loves me. Well, you go ahead and you'll hit the ground just like anybody else will and and God will still love you, but he, you may find him loving you in heaven and not, not, in, not on this earth anymore. So you understand, there's a healthy fear. There's a fear of God that's healthy. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about living your life in such a way where you're making your decisions, doing what you're doing, motivated out of fear because you're afraid that... See, here's, here's what this does. There's two important things you need to understand about fear and faith. The first is this. If fear is motivating your life, you will live life with regret of what might have been. I remember this. I remember my dad. My dad passed away in 1989. My dad was born in 1912. He, had a, he dropped out of school in the sixth grade because his mom died and, and he had to take care of his family at age 12. But I was always amazed. My dad was a very intelligent man. He would help me with my math. And, you know, I'd be older, and I'm like, you only have a sixth grade education. How can you help me with this math? Because it just shows you how much we have dumbed down the system. But I remember my dad was literally, my dad was a ditch digger is what he was. He was a dragline operator. Not many people know what a dragline is anymore. They used to be real real big, and and, uh, that's what you had to use to dig dirt, to dig holes, and he'd dig big holes in the ground. Anyways, he was a a dragline operator, and I remember him telling me that one time him and the man that that he worked for had an opportunity to buy, I forget how many acres, it it was several hundred acres up around Bandera, and uh, they they were going to go into partnership, and when they went to go get ready to sign the papers, the guy had raised the price to $90 an acre. And my dad and uh, his boss turned around and walked out because they thought that was highway robbery. So now, you know, here we are. You know, I grew up hunting and, and fishing, and we had a deer lease. And, you know, my dad told me that story. He said, you know, we could right now own several hundred acres in Bandera. He said, but $90 an acre was an unreasonable price when we were fixing to make the deal. And I'm just going, oh my gosh, $90 an acre, (laughs) you know? You can't buy anything for $90 an acre anymore. Now, we can say, well, it wasn't meant to be. And obviously, it wasn't meant to be because it didn't happen. But here's another thing I also realized. What my dad didn't say directly, he said indirectly. 
they were more motivated by fear. They were fearful that that was just too much, and it, it, wasn't, it was an investment that would never pay off. I mean, this, back then, that was laying out in the middle of nowhere, just in the middle of the hills with nothing out there. You guys been to Bandera lately? Yeah. Chances are, if I owned several hundred acres in Bandera, I wouldn't be here today. I might not have my sons, my daughter, my grandchildren. might not know all you wonderful people. God's good. God knows. But at the same time I say that, I want to say this. Don't live your life motivated by fear. So fear... If fear is motivating your life, you'll live your life with regret of what might have been. I have no regrets. I'm not sad that I don't own several hundred acres in Bandera. Well, maybe a little bit. <laughs> but I wouldn't trade being here for those several hundred acres. I can say that in all honesty. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't trade my ability to preach and teach the gospel of Christ for any amount of land I could own anywhere, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. Here's the second thing. Now, here's, here's something else about motivating your life being motivated by fear. Holding back in fear can give the illusion of safety, yet it actually produces the greatest risk. Oftentimes we hold back in fear because we think it's the safe thing to do, but, but in reality, it, it more than likely is producing the greatest risk. Because when we hold back in fear instead of operating out of faith, there, there, is a, there is a real danger that we could not be seeing the will of God. Here's the second thing. When faith is motivating your life, you will live life with expectancy of what will be. Why? Do we preach the gospel because we have an expectancy of what will be? I can't see your heart. I don't know what's in your heart. I can't see how the gospel is working in the hearts of the people that are hearing it. But I have faith. Faith in what? Faith in the word of God. Because Paul declared this in Romans. And we know that the gospel is what? It is the power of God unto salvation. So as the gospel is being preached, as the gospel is being declared, there is an expectancy that God is working in his power to affect salvation in the life of the hearer. That's all I have to know. I don't have to know how, when, or where that took place, that transformation took place, but I have to know that when I preach and teach the gospel, when you declare the gospel, when you live the gospel, there should be an expectancy in your life that God is working by his power. Because God says the gospel is the only, it is the only power there is unto salvation. There is nothing else but the gospel. So pressing on in faith may involve great risk. For those guys in Somalia, they risk their very life, yet they press on in faith. Why? Because Though it may involve great risk, it produces the greatest glory. It produces the greatest glory. Jesus really died on a cross. 
But his death on the cross produced the greatest glory. Those guys are really dying in Somalia, but somehow, out of those deaths, out of those martyrs, God will produce the greatest glory. Don't live life looking at the risk. Live life with the expectancy of His greatest glory. I'm going to give you, then we're going to close, three components that mark a life motivated by faith. So, one thing I want you to understand, a life of faith, I don't want faith to just become a work that you do. I'm going to work really hard and have more faith. No, I don't want you to do that. Because faith is not a work you perform. Salvation is not a work you perform. Faith is a gift. You can take that faith and you can do something with it. Can you grow your faith? Yes, the Bible teaches us we can grow our faith. Grow it. Grow it as big as you can. But a life of faith is a life that is abiding in Christ. A life of faith is a life that is abiding in Christ. You are a branch abiding in the vine. So you're working just as hard as a branch works abiding in a vine. There is a work taking place. But you're not the one doing the work. It is God in you that is doing the work. Paul says to the Philippians, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. So a life of faith is a a life that's abiding in Christ, listen, with the realization or with realized expectation of fruitfulness. If we're abiding in a vine, there should be not only an expectation of fruitfulness, but a realized expectation of fruitfulness. If you're in the fruit business and all your fruit trees are fruitless, how long are you going to keep them and still be in the fruit business? You're not going to, are you? Because if you're in the fruit business, you have fruit trees for the purpose of not having good-looking trees, but having good-looking fruit. So as believers abiding in Christ, there should be a realized expectation of His fruitfulness. Three components that mark a life motivated by faith. The first is this. A life motivated by faith is a life governed in the Word of God. We read Proverbs 29, 18. Where there is no prophetic revelation, people cast off restraint. But happy is he, happy is he, who what? Who keeps, who abides in the law. So a life Motivated motivated by faith is a life governed in the Word of God. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who who sits not in the seat of the scornful, walks in the paths of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And, And on his law, in his law, in his word, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water, whose fruit will come forth, in season, and whose leaf will never fail. And whatever he puts his hands to, it will prosper. A life, a 
A faith is a life governed in the Word of God. A li- it's a life empowered in the Spirit of God. Acts 1.8, Jesus said, Go and wait in Jerusalem until you have been endued with power from on high. Galatians 5.16, let me read this to you. Turn over there real quick if you have your Bibles. Galatians 5.16, Paul says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then verses 22 and 23, give us the fruit of the Spirit. Who produces fruit? You are God. God does. Who does He produce it through? He produces it through you. So a life marked or motivated by faith is a life empowered in the Spirit of God. It's not a life lived in the power of the flesh. It's a life lived in the power of God's Spirit. The third is this. A life motivated by faith is a life perfected in the love of God. Now that word perfect for us has a connotation that is not accurate to what the Scripture is 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 conveying to us. Perfect for us, we think of a perfectionist. We think of someone who's obsessive and compulsive about having to have every... It almost carries, in some ways, a negative connotation. The word perfect in the Bible actually means complete. doesn't mean you have no stains on your clothes and they're pressed just right. They're perfect. No. It speaks of completeness. So go to 1 John 4, 18. Why is a life motivated by faith, why is it marked by, a, a, by being perfected in the love of God? Well, 1 John 4, 18 tells us something really important here. Because remember, I made this statement, a lot of people are living more motivated by fear than they are faith. 1 John 4:18 There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. How many of you how many of you have ever been tormented by fear? Fear really is torment. And God doesn't want you to live tormented lives. He doesn't want you to live tormented by fear. Because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. This isn't about you becoming perfect. See, when we, we talk about that, most human beings, their first thought is, well, what do I need to do to get perfect, to become perfect, so that I won't have any fear? No, that's not what that scripture is saying. That's not talking about you becoming perfect. That's talking about you understanding the perfect love that God has for you. This isn't a fatalistic attitude toward life. This is an attitude of faith that in spite of the fact that my car broke down today, I'm going to trust God. Somehow, it's going to get worked out. In spite of the fact I just lost my job this week and I don't know what I'm going to do, you know what? Well, what are you going to do? You going to lose your mind? Or are you going to focus your faith in God and say, you know what, God, you knew You know that I've lost my job, so God, I'm going to trust you. 
So a life motivated by faith is a life governed in the word of God. It's a life empowered in the spirit of God. And it's a life perfected in the love of God. If I know and I understand that God loves me completely, perfectly. Well, I love you almost completely. But you know, there's that one thing in your life that I just really can't stand. And if you don't get that, if you don't get that taken care of, you know, I might just kick you out of the family. No, sorry. That's not who God is. No, God loves us completely, and he is committed to make us fruitful. So what's he say? Hey, if you're a vine that's littered with leaves and cluttered with leaves, you might look really good and showy on the outside, but the problem is all those things attached to your life are sucking all the life out, and there is no fruit. Well, I love you enough that I'm going to come along, and I'm going to clean you up, I'm going to prune you, I'm going to start cutting away things in your life you will become fruitful. Is that a painful process? Oftentimes it is. But when we understand that God loves us perfectly, completely, we have no fear. Because his plan for me is good, his purpose for me is good. And I can trust him because he is a good God, even though bad things happen all around us. He is good. So a life of faith presses toward the goal. It's a life motivated by a prophetic revelation. Where does that come from? It comes from the Word of God, but more importantly, who is this prophetic revelation? Well, Christ is that prophetic revelation. If Christ is not your revelation, if Christ is not the vision before you, you are going to be a person who has cast off restraint, perishing. Don't go to the Word of God to find your success. Go to the Word of God to find your salvation. Your salvation is not just a way of life. Your salvation is a person. His name is Jesus. And let Him become the revelation of your life. Let Him become the very vision that drives your life, that motivates your life. Let Him become the very passion that would enable you to give your right foot and your right hand. Christ is that prophetic revelation. Christ revealed. How is Christ revealed? How do we get that revelation? Christ is revealed in the Word of God. Christ is revealed by the Spirit of God. Now, see, I'm reading Scripture to you today, but I can't give you a revelation of anything. I can give you the truth, but only God can give you a revelation. You can go to the prophet's house all day long and get words from him, but I'm telling you what, until you get a revelation by the Spirit of God and that doesn't come from a man, that comes from God living on the inside of you. Stop looking to men to give you what only God can. Christ is revealed in the Word. He's revealed by the Spirit. It is this. It is Christ revealed to us. Christ revealed in us, Christ revealed through us, Christ revealed to every man. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl we come in contact with, we should reveal Christ to them. If Christ has revealed to us, if he has been revealed in us, he should be revealed through us. Amen. And to quote a popular TV show, fear is not a factor. Amen? Let's all stand. If you're here today and you would like to know more about knowing Christ, I would invite you to come and let's talk. 
Amen? Say, well, I don't have time, Pastor Jeff. I'm going to tell you what, if you don't have time, if you know that you don't know Christ and you need to know him, I would just encourage you to take the time to investigate him. Father, I ask you today that, Lord, you would by your spirit, even as we have said in this place today, give us a revelation of your son. Lord, the, the vision that the church needs must begin with the prophetic vision who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we have chased, we have run after so many other things, and we see where that has gotten us. Father, I pray that you would help us. Lord, help us come to a revelation of Christ. Lord, I pray that we would begin to ask ourselves the difficult questions, that we would begin to look inward with the hope, God, that you would reveal the Son to us. Lord, whether we are not in Christ, whether we have been in Christ a short period of time or we have been in Christ for many, many years, it does not matter. You are the endless, eternal Son of God, the God of creation. There is no end. There is no depth to you. There is nothing that can, in any finite way, define you. You are infinite in every way. So God, help us to grow in that infinite knowledge of who you are, that we would be a people, a people who would grow up into all things in Christ, that we would be Christ to every man that we meet, that we would see, God, that we are called people of faith, to live by faith, that others may know We are here for a greater cause, a greater purpose than ourselves. Help us, God, find our greatest joy, our greatest fulfillment as we live that out every day that you have blessed us to be alive. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right. God bless you. Have a great day. If you want prayer for anything, whether it's you want to pray about uh, healing, something going on in your life, you want to talk about salvation, please come. If not, I'll see you tonight at 6 o'clock at St. Paul Luther. Have a great day. Love you. Love you too, man. Hi, Miss Amanda.